Welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with me, your host, Harry Stebbings, and you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. Yes, really regretting putting the year of my birth in my Instagram handle, but enough of that and to the show today. And what a show we have in store for you as we welcome a man with over 25 years in B2B technology industry leadership experience to the show in the form of Mark Godley, president at Lead Genius, the startup that provides the power of human intelligence with the scale of machine learning. To date, they've raised over $16 million in funding from the of Andreessen Horowitz, Initialized Capital, Scott and Cyan Bannister, and SV Angel, just to name a few. As for Mark, he most recently served as Chief Revenue Officer for HG Data, and before that was VP of Market Development for Connect and Sell. If that wasn't enough, Mark also holds advisory roles in the sales and MarTech space, including Omniquo, ZenIQ.io, and The Big Willow. I do also want to say a big thank you to the one and only Jason Lemkin for the intro to Mark today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we dive into the show today, if you have a digital product, whether it's mobile or web, Amplitude's product analytics helps you understand what your users are doing, iterate and ship product faster, and drive product metrics like engagement and retention. And Amplitude's analytics dashboards are so flexible, yet easy to use to answer any question that you have about user behavior, no SQL required. Top product teams at PayPal, Twitter, and HubSpot use Amplitude to get the insights they need to achieve their product goals. And you can download your free copy of the product analytics playbook to get 155 pages and worksheets teaching you how to learn from your analytics data to build a really sticky product that grows your business. And you can check it out at amplitude.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. Likewise, we all know that user education is one of the most powerful ways to increase engagement and retention at scale, yet it's often put in the too hard basket. Well, Alevio is that powerful platform that exists to remove this burden, empowering your users to self-serve contextually relevant help via their support widget and embeddable elements, increasing retention and engagement whilst also reducing support load. And Alevio even tells you what content to add or fix and why, based on usage trends from your users, preventing content rot and increasing coverage, which we all know is an ongoing challenge. You can also integrate with your existing support stack for content, access to live chat, support tickets, and more. And you can discover why companies like Atlassian, AdRoll, and Heap use Alevio for continuous user education with 20% off your first year at elev.io forward slash and use the coupon code GOHARRY. I would love to see you use that. What a coupon code. But without further ado, and I'm now thrilled to hand over to Mark Godley, president at Lead Genius. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Mark, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Mark. It's great to be with you. Well, I'd love to kick off today with a little bit about you and how you came to make your way into the wonderful world of SaaS and came to be the president of Lead Genius. Oh my goodness, that's a very circuitous route. I've been a bit of a startup junkie for the last 10 years. Uh, I started in SaaS before the term existed. I started selling payroll services back in the early 90s when recurring revenue you know, wasn't even something that was talked about. Did that for 10 years, then went into privately held companies that were being bought and sold, took a sabbatical to run a nonprofit. And coming out of that sabbatical, I was trying to buy a company. I failed miserably in buying a going concern, ended up investing in some guys that had an idea on a whiteboard. And that started my addiction to very irrational career of, of trying to audaciously birth concepts and bring ideas to life. 
Well, I mean, I absolutely love that stop. But it's interesting you said there about investing because we were discussing before some themes for the show and you said, don't raise money, sign customers. So I'd like to maybe start with this. And why do you (laughs) hold this stance toward fundraising? I'm a VC. Try and please appease my feelings. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and, um, you know, maybe that was a bit of a clickbait title, but um, I'm a gray beard, Harry. I've been at this for a long time. And here out in the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm seeing about my third major wave of enormous innovation preceded by just eye-popping influx of capital, these private unicorns that are amazing. But what I'm seeing in the the coattails of these companies really changing the world is I'm seeing people, in my opinion, starting companies for the wrong reasons. They're starting companies because they want to get rich. They're looking for some quick scheme and they're almost being designed in the Starbucks coffee shop or in the bro house in the Mission District of San Francisco, you know, guys around some furniture they found on Craigslist with the express purpose of where are VCs putting money? Let's do that because they can code. And if we if we design the business with that end in mind, surely Microsoft, LinkedIn, Facebook, or name your titan of industry today is going to buy in 24 months. And so I'm seeing this enormous amount of companies being funded that I believe are starting with the wrong motivation to premise. Can I jump in and ask whose fault is that? You mentioned they're kind of constructing it for the VCs. Could you blame the VCs then for funding maybe the wrong founders with the wrong motivations? Could you blame the LPs for investing in managers who allocate capital who do have those motives? How do you think about an element of responsibility and where that falls? That's a great question. And I I wish I'd thought about it so I'd have a a witty, quick answer for you. But I think in general, the capital markets have been so amazing for so many years. There's just a lot of money out there that's got to flow somewhere. And so I think now we're seeing a lot less seed and A money because I think what's happened is some of this high risk investments of the last eight to five years post 2008 crash, I think a lot of people are realizing, oh my gosh, we got a little ahead of ourselves on thinking every single segment of the economy was going to be fast and and everything was going to be platform shifted to a phone. And so I think what you're seeing is now a lot more, at least what I'm seeing, and money seems to be moving much more to towards BC and even private equity as opposed to three guys, you know, who are juniors out of Stanford who think they can take on name your hundred year old company that's a billion plus G. Yeah. SAS G. I, I do have to touch on the second element of that statement though being the don't raise money, sign customers. In terms of the signing customers, a lot of customers, especially as you kind of move up the stream enterprise wise, gain a great sense of kind of comfort from seeing large name investors on the cap tables of the vendors that they're buying from. How do you think about the requirement of getting kind of grade A funding to secure those customers in the first place? Yeah, no, I think it goes right to that time customers piece. And thank you for bringing me back to the second half of that clickbait statement. Because when I say sign customers, what I'm saying is design a software, design a service, design a product that fills a real need that is ubiquitous. If you start with, so, so don't just build a feature. 
feature that you're trying to flip. You know, we almost need a, we have the HGTV flip my house. We almost need a, a SaaS channel, you know, you know, flip my software. Because again, that's what I'm seeing so much of here in, in the bubble S Valley. Whereas I'm, I'm also seeing companies that have started by stumbling upon a real deep need and they're coming out of the gate with paying customers, not reusing customers, but people who are willing to exchange for their service cold, hard, hard cash. And so I think the best way to attract a tier one VC is to bootstrap your business. Maybe you got a moonlight. Maybe you don't leave that decently paid job and jump right in. Maybe you actually work really hard on your free time with some folks that are willing to put in sweat equity. You get some customers who are willing to pay you money and then you go seek investment. So again, maybe I'm just getting too old. I've been at this too long, but I'm actually seeing some companies that have started like that and they're gaining enough uh, revenue traction and they're being approached by third-party investors and they're wondering if they even need the money. What a wonderful environment to raise money in if that's your circumstance. We need more listen, of that. Listen, I had Zapier on the show recently who've raised $1.3 million and got right. to 35 ARR. But, right. you have, but I do have to ask, you said there about kind of gaining that early traction, gaining that early customer set and then raising money. Is there an inflection point for you where it really makes sense to go out and raise and maybe even raise a big round? When is that turning tide? So I've been at, going back to how I started, this is my fifth startup that I've been an employee and I've been advisors to another half dozen startups. So I mean, I haven't seen an enormous number of deals, but I've been intimately involved with a dozen or so. And I've been involved pre-revenue. I've gotten involved angel. I've gotten involved A. I've gotten involved post B. So very much full spectrum. Once you get to C and growth in the tens or hundreds of millions, that's not my forte. So I'm, I'm relatively early. I think raising money when you have certainly tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, and you can back into what that means from an MOR or an AR standpoint, is the right way to do it. I mean, what I often see is when people are raising money in the angel rounds, typically they're very inexperienced fundraisers and they end up structuring deals that they end up regretting in that the cap table isn't designed well or the terms aren't a win-win or they don't raise enough money so that they're constantly on this treadmill of being undercapitalized. So people that are new to the fundraising game, I don't necessarily think they often have access to the right doors to get capitalized well, at least from what I see in the circles that I run. And then folks that have been at it a couple times, they've got a reputation so they can kind of leapfrog into some deep, deep decent capitalizations right out of the gate. Can I ask, you mentioned that kind of undercapitalization and runways. I'm always interested comparing maybe SaaS to consumer where sales cycles really do mean extended runways are required. How long do you think is the right time to raise for? You know, it's often hailed 18 months. I often much prefer 24 to 30. How do you think about the right amount of time in terms of runway? I'm with you, Harry. I'm a 24-month plus guy, if you can get it. Well, I think the length of raise, I think, also varies by stage, right? I mean, you know, angels or really super early VC, almost pre-revenue type stuff, you're really looking at proving a concept in the marketplace. So your runway might be, hey, I need money for six or nine months because in that six or nine months, I'm going to gain a toehold and six marquee customers that will be the logo that can get me to the A round. I think as you line up the rounds, the length of raise 
should increase in time. No, that makes sense. I'm intrigued. You said there about marquee companies. It's always a big question for me with regards to kind of startup targeting in the early days in SaaS. To what extent do you think startups should target those big marquee names, Dropbox, Box, Atlassian, HubSpot as accounts versus getting multiple and many more smaller accounts, which may be much easier to close? How do you think about the comparison? Yeah, so I've made my career largely selling into the enterprise space, even if it wasn't an enterprise-grade application, even if it was just an application being used by a division, a function, a business unit, etc. I've never done the freemium or bottoms-up approach where you kind of get some users with a piece of shareware, uh, and then you eventually you know, get some credit card-based subscriptions, and then you leverage that up to enterprise. I'm seeing so many companies do that successfully. I'm kind of jealous. Like I, I need to, I need to get that, get that trick in my bag. I need to learn that because I, I've typically done the opposite. Now, now the, the good news is because I've typically done selling to the IBMs of the world, selling to the Microsofts of the world, selling to the Facebooks of the world. If I'm in a startup that's looking for funding and you have those globally recognized brands, you know that does grab the attention of funders, providing you can make the case that you can then scale it to the masses. I don't have the experience of saying, hey, I've got 200 or 2,000 freemium users, and if you give me money, I'm then going to build the paid version, and I think I'm going to flip 30% of them. I've never done that type of scenario. You haven't, Mark, but you mentioned your extensive experience there selling to enterprise. I had breakfast just this morning with an enterprise founder saying, Harry, I've got two problems. How do I break through the sea of enterprise startups selling to the CIOs of these mega companies? That was his first question. And his second was, how do I secondly, once in the door, get them to trust me, a six-person startup, with some pretty incredibly valuable data and responsibility when they're so large and I'm so small? If we start with the how do you break through the noise and then secondarily trust, how do you think about those two? Well, going back to me being an old curmudgeon, I don't think there's a secret panacea here. The way you break through is you work really hard, you make a lot of phone calls, you send a lot of emails, and you follow up on them. And by doing that, you eventually get lucky. I know a lot of people that have toiled for years and years and years with ideas and concepts, only to become overnight successes that the world finds out about because of those years of resilience and perseverance when there was no one else besides themselves motivating them to carry on. So again, I don't have any magic here. Being an old guy who started in business literally before the personal computer, when all you had was brute force effort, I've carried forward that, just roll up your sleeves and start making phone calls. Now, because I've been at this so long, there is one thing I'd I'd recommend to your audience, which is what I value and nurture quite a bit is my personal network. And now in my third decade in the business world, I have relationships that I can call on when I go to a new company and say, you know, I might not have talked to someone in five, 10 years, but they will take my phone calls. And I ask for a lot of favors because I'm very generous with my time. And I've got a bank of credibility built up with people that I can now draw upon. But when I go into a new company and I need feedback on direction or I need an introduction to someone, I can now go in through the side door by leveraging people that know me personally, who I've given to over the years that are more than willing to now give back to me based on the trust and credibility we've built up with each other over 
time. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more in terms of that personal network value. In terms of getting through the side door, I'm interested on the trust element. How do you get big mega conglomerates and, and titans of tech, so to speak, to trust you when you're such a small enterprise startup? How would you advise that founder? Well, I think the founder has to be, I would say, credible and vulnerable. One of the things I don't like about Silicon Valley is people start to read their own press. And honestly, most of us are not changing the world. <laughs> you know, like even though as we're talking to VCs like you, Harry, we want to describe our business as billion dollar potential and we're the next name your unicorn. Most of us are not really doing that. And I find if you're just honest and real with people, and I use the term vulnerable and I mean that, if you get in the door talking to decision makers about, look, here's what we do well. Here's where we're challenged. Open your kimono. Expose your underbelly. Explain to these people how you think you can make a difference and don't wait for them to draw the conclusions on their own as, and here's the risks you would be taking by working with us. I find that if you approach conversation in a win-win scenario where you are thinking through, is there a fit here? And, And this is a key phrase, helping someone buy versus selling them something, it can make all the difference. And because I approach relationships and conversations with pure curiosity, I've done something really cool with this business. I don't know if it's a fit here or not, but let's explore that together. And if I'm not feeling like it's a fit, I'm going to be genuine and honest with you. People tend to be forthright in their communication back to you. And you don't do this as a sales tactic. You do this as a genuine business approach. And people can smell the difference. And when they do smell the difference and, and they do get interested, often with large enterprise players, they prefer a more kind of cruel walk run approach to kind of onboarding new vendors. I'm intrigued. How do you think about pilots, paid pilots versus free pilots and kind of ensuring maximum productivity from them and ultimately conversion at the end? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And, and I had the thought 90 seconds ago and you're very perceptive to maybe pick up on that somewhere and bring it back to that. Because the other thing one needs to do is you need to prove your credibility to someone that has risk in buying from you. So whether it's a freemium offering or some kind of trial or some kind of pilot or something, if you're asking someone to take not just organizational risk, but personal risk, you've got to think about as someone who is selling, let's be honest here, you've got to think about what can you do to build organizational credibility and personal credibility to reduce their risk in that purchase decision. So, and by the way, you know, a lot of the last 10 years I've been in the data space and the data space is rampant with fly-by-night, absolute, call mystery meat vendors that make audacious claims. Every day I meet with a new prospect, I am digging out of the industry hole that has been dug for me by the litany of unfulfilled promises that precede me from unscrupulous companies. So I think you need to create a buying process that does allow people to experience your offering in a very low risk fashion. And I don't think there's a one size fits all. In other words, I'm not saying I don't have a black and white answer that you don't do unpaid pilots or you only do paid pilots. I mean, in in my business, we do data samples. We do try to allow people to have some kind of freemium experience so that they can get a sense of quality and scale. But then the second step is often a paid engagement of some length where there is risk on both sides before we eventually do get to annual or multi-year relationships. 
So in my world, it's a three-step process. Can I ask, is there anything that you think that startups and vendors can do to kind of maximize the chance of conversion, be it set benchmarks on initial signing of pilot and then kind of being able to go back to them at the end of the pilot and say, hey, we hit one, two, and three, here's the contract. Is there anything that can be done to really maximize the chances of those pilot conversions? I think there's one thing that I consistently have seen, and this goes to some of the other things we might get into talking about, which I think the sales stack in the MarTech stack has gotten so sophisticated I think one of the offsets of that has been the atrophying of the average sales rep. And and I'm backing into the answer to your question is what I see oftentimes when I go into new organizations is a sales organization that is too quick to offer the free trial, too quick to offer the free credential. And they're expecting their product to sell for them. They've skipped the entire qualification step of the sales process. This is not just for salesmen. This is for founders and folks that anyone out there trying to gain a customer. You have got to qualify the prospect. And part of qualifying the prospect is talking about the long term. Right now at Lead Genius, one of the things we're doing is we're making this exact change. We have gotten far too quickly, literally in the first sales call, for a sales rep to say, let me send you a data sample without even talking about with that prospect. Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, do you realize our average annual spend from an S&B client is $24,000. Do you realize that our average spend for a mid-sized customer is $48,000? And these are annual or multi-year relationships. Do you have an appetite for that? Is that kind of the relationship you're looking for? Are you looking for someone just to come in and do a 90-day project for you? So having the difficult conversation early is the step I consistently see people skipping because they think their product is so good. People are going to be absolutely enamored by it and they'll get to that difficult conversation later. The opposite has happened. Software has become so democratized and there are so many alternatives. The ability to differentiate has become so short-term and so small that there are viable alternatives in every segment out there. I don't care if a company has a differentiation today. They're not going to have it in 60 days. So I think this really makes it imperative for the sales rep to get back to basic qualification and if you're going to give something, you need to ask for something in return. And asking for something for a return is talking about that long-term relationship as soon as possible. You said there about basic qualification and sales reps returning to that. You said before to me that sales tech is ruining the sales profession. Is that what you mean when you were when I do. You kind of, yeah, absolutely. I do. And then, now the good news is, Harry, it has allowed the sales profession from a volume standpoint to blossom. Like anybody can come out of university if you can look someone in an eye and hold a conversation, you can be chained to a desk, you know, with a headset and join the sales profession. But you better not stop there. You better invest in yourself. And what I am saying is because marketing can now generate dozens or hundreds of MQLs, because you can add a BDR tool and create nurture campaigns, the average sales rep today is interested in a passive sales engagement. And that's not how you birth a company. That's not how you gain customers, and that's not how you eventually get to hockey step big growth. Sales is a contact sport, and too many people have forgotten that. No, I, I love that. But kind of speaking of that and where we're at now with the sales profession and kind of maybe projecting it a few years out, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the future status for the role of sales ops. How do you view this role planning out over the next few years and how it kind of will take form? So I really think this is a 
place where I think my predictions are going to be, I'm hoping that they're spot on. What I'm seeing is, and it's tied to that last comment I made here, which is the average sales rep, they're coming into the roles early in their careers. They don't have as much business acumen. They've been buoyed by the technology stack that is actually, it's kind of like the Iron Man suit that they can put on. Uh, Very closely related to that is the professionalization of the sales operations and the marketing operations function to the point that I think it might actually be a C-suite function five or 10 years from now. By that, I mean, if I go back five or 10 years ago, a sales ops person was an engineer who really couldn't code very well, but you wanted to keep it the company. So you brought them over to sales or marketing and you said, hey, create some custom fields for me. You know, build me a new view. You know, build me a dashboard for something. So it's moved from this task level reactive role to really, I think, this amazingly important function that stitches together both the marketing and sales function. Uh, It builds a bridge there. It builds a bridge between the marketplace and product. And it builds a bridge between the front office fronts doing the work and the C-suite that are trying to see, does that work align with our strategic goals? And so the sales ops person is in this epicenter of these three axes that I think, and, and I've seen some people do this, that they are being elevated into strategic roles in companies where like the CEO of a company has their formal, they have the control where they get information, but if they really want to know what's going on in the business, they go have a beer with the sales ops folks. Can I ask one final question before we dive into the quick fire with regards to that sales ops? And it's how do you differentiate between a good sales ops and a great sales ops, a world-class sales ops? What's the difference? I kind of alluded to some of the things a little bit earlier. It's proactive versus reactive. I also think it's business acumen versus, you know, that kind of snarky comment about the engineer that couldn't code. And I also think it's someone that understands the customer. And what's neat about the companies I've worked for for the last couple of years is I've been selling data and I've been selling into the MarTech and sales tech stack. So oftentimes the sales ops people I work with are part of the buying centers at prospect companies. So by design, I've kind of seen the sales ops people that, yes, they're working on Marketo and Salesforce and, and ad tech stuff at, at the company, but by design, they're kind of an internal domain expert for my product people. So I've seen their ability to be elevated. And, you know, because I've, I've been working for very crossing the chasm, leading edge technology companies that are adopted by companies that are innovators, in those innovative companies, I'm seeing the same thing. So I can't wait to see this move from innovative tech companies in Silicon Valley to manufacturing companies in Kansas. And once that leap happens in a couple of years, I think it's going to be wonderful for all of us. Look, I, I couldn't agree more. Some very exciting times ahead. I do want to dive into my favorite of any interview, I do have to admit, which is Mark 60 seconds faster. So I say a short oh, statement no. and then you give me your immediate thoughts within 60 seconds <laughs> per one, per one. How does you that You didn't happen? prep me for this, Harry. I'm a little scared, but let's go. 
What's been your biggest learning from advising the many companies you have done? Taking other people's money has incredible obligations to it and do not celebrate when that money gets wired because that is when the work starts. Why are data vendors their own worst enemy? Most data vendors are talking about their impact on the business in generalities and they're also jumping on the coattails and bandwagon of predictive analytics, ABM. And from a buyer's perspective, they can't understand what the hell we all do. I think all of us have to be genuine, honest, clear, crisp, and concise about how we're differentiated, what we do, what we don't do, because we're confusing the hell out of the marketplace and all of our websites look the same. What about your favorite SaaS reading material? Rainy day in the Bay. What do you sit down to? So I'm going to disappoint you and say, I do not read business books, although I read voraciously. I read a ton of nonfiction in industries unrelated to business, a lot of science-based stuff, a lot of education-based stuff, a lot of historical fictions, many, many different genres, 90% nonfiction. And what I often find is there are enormous parallels back to the business world. And I'll just throw out two titles as of late. The Last Days of Night, I read last year, and it is a historical fiction that is very business-oriented. It was written by the gentleman who wrote about the guy who had the Enigma machine. Um, oh, oh, sure. I can't think of it right now. Sure. Turing. He wrote about Turing. Uh, there was a movie about Turing recently. The Something Game. The Something Game. The Imitation Game. Uh, imitation Game. Yes. Young writer in his 30s. He, he wrote The Imitation Game. He wrote The Last Days of Night. I can't wait to follow this guy for the next 30 years because he's absolutely fantastic. And then let's do a final one. And what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your first decade? It's now your third decade in the industry. At the beginning of your first decade in the industry, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? There are no shortcuts to success other than hard work. If you get really, really lucky and are successful early, don't let it go to your head. And lastly, be really careful about how you define success. Most people do it based on their bank account and car they drive. And by the time you get to my age, that stuff is meaningless. Mark, you can tell how much I've enjoyed the show today from how little I stuck to our pre-planned schedule. So thank you so much for joining me today. It really has been such a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Such a special and very honest guest to have on the show there with Mark, and I have to say, I so enjoyed doing that show, and if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes at Sasta, you can on Instagram at hdebbings1996. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, if you have a digital product, whether it's mobile or web, Amplitude's product analytics helps you understand what your users are doing, iterate and ship product faster, and drive product metrics like engagement and retention, and Amplitude's analytics dashboards are so flexible, yet easy to use to answer any questions that you have about user behavior, no SQL required. Top product teams at PayPal, Twitter, and HubSpot use Amplitude to get the insights they need to achieve their product goals. And you can download your free copy of the Product Analytics Playbook to get 155 pages and worksheets teaching you how to learn from your analytics data to build a really sticky product that grows your business. And you can check it out at amplitude.com forward slash Sasta. That really is a must. Likewise, we all know that user education is one of the most powerful ways to increase engagement and retention 
measurement scale, yet it's often put in the too hard basket. Well, Elevio is that powerful platform that exists to remove this burden, empowering your users to self-serve contextually relevant help via their support widget and embeddable elements, increasing retention and engagement, whilst also reducing support load. And Elevio even tells you what content to add or fix and why, based on usage trends from your users, preventing content rot and increasing coverage, which we all know is an ongoing challenge. You can also integrate with your existing support stack for content, access to live chats, support tickets, and more. And you can discover why companies like Atlassian, AdRoll, and Heap use Elevio for continuous user education with 20% off your first year at elev.io forward slash Sasta and use the coupon code GOHARRY. I would love to see you use that. What a coupon code. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.